we live in a culture that seems to have difficulty in committing to things that are of importance. Um, we live in a culture where I, you know, a number of years ago, somebody, uh, I was talking to a counselor and, and they said, yeah, there's just a lot of people who have FOMO. And I'm going, are you talking in tongues? What in the world are you? FOMO, what is FOMO? It's an acronym, fear of missing out. And I go, and it just kind of popped it. I'm going, that's right. There are so many people that are, are, we live in a culture where people are, are fearful of missing out. And as a result, they hesitate to commit to something because when you make commitments, you eliminate the possibility of other things. Way, way, a long time ago in a land far away, um, I got down on my knee and I asked a girl named Sheila Kowalski if she would be my wife. And she started crying. And at first I thought it was because <laughs> this is who's going to ask me to marry me? Really? And then I discovered, no, she wanted to spend the rest of my life, our lives together. There are a lot of people in our culture who are afraid to do that because by, doing, by asking Sheila to be my wife, I eliminated all the other possibilities. And she eliminated all the other possibilities of, of men that she could marry. We live in a culture where people are afraid of missing out, and so they're afraid of making commitments, and as a result, they miss the best that God has to offer. When we make a commitment to something, then and only then can we really experience what that has to offer. So, Sheila and I had been dating, but it was as we said, I do, and we began our life together that we began to experience the depth of what it means to share life together, which means discovering things that you had no idea <laughs> could even possibly exist and, and having uh, struggles, but also having victories and having children together and, and all of these possibilities because of the commitment that was made. But that means all of these other possibilities are no longer on the table. We have to make the decision. We have to wrestle with this issue. Is Jesus worth making the absolute ultimate commitment to better is that, and being better than anything else? Amen. We have to wrestle with that because... There are so many people, who, many of them who even call themselves Christians, who are, who are straddling the fence, and they want Jesus, but they are afraid of missing out on other things. They want Jesus, but they're afraid that he's going to take away things that they really like or, or, or really love. They, they want Jesus, but they're not quite sure that they can let go of other things. And that's the issue that we have to wrestle with. And that's what the Apostle Paul addresses in Philippians chapter 3. So turn in your Bible there to Philippians chapter 3. Does anybody need a Bible? We've got some Bibles in the back. Does anybody? Just raise your hand and we'll have a usher deliver one to you. So today we want to talk about settling this issue. Is knowing Jesus Christ better than anything else? And if so, then we need to commit, put our full weight, full trust in him. Settling this issue. Number one, we find the testimony of the Apostle Paul. And we're not going to spend much time here because we've talked about it the last couple of weeks. You can, we've got CDs over here. Also, by the way, I don't know if you are aware, but we've got... Um, Every message is put on an audio podcast. On the bottom of the back of the bulletin, there's an address where through Spotify, you can download through your, to your phone or MP3 player. You can listen later if you want. Um, but we've talked about that last couple of weeks, so I'm just going to touch on this. Here's the testimony of Paul that all really is manure. He is stating it. All is manure. All is refuse. All is the bottom of a trash can 
We talked about that. The, the stuff that think stuffs that makes you gag. All everything in life compared to knowing Jesus doesn't mean it is is bad. It just means compared to knowing Jesus, it's like the stuff that makes you gag. And so his testimony is that he had it all. Philippians chapter three, beginning with verse four. Though I myself have reason for confidence in the flesh also, if anyone else thinks he has reason for confidence in the flesh, I have more. And so he begins to identify all the stuff that was good in his life, all the stuff that was valuable, all the stuff that people would envy that he had in this world. He says, circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law of Pharisee, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church. As to righteousness under the law, blameless. And so he says, he was circumcised on the eighth day, means he's a pure-blooded Jew of the, the chosen people of God. He was of the people of Israel. He could trace his family lineage all the way back to Abraham. He was of the tribe of Benjamin, a special honor, a tribe that had special honor. He was a Hebrew son of Hebrew parents. He, he wasn't, um, he wasn't, uh, he didn't become a Jew. He was born a Jew by two Jewish parents. And then he was a Pharisee, a member of the strictest sect that people would look up to and say, those are the best of the best of the Jewish people. He was a persecutor of the church, he was, which meant he was a defender of God. He was, he was chasing people down who didn't, he, by his perception, serve God. And then finally he said he was blameless. By the external keeping of the law, he says, I was perfect. I was keeping it all. He had it all. And then we see he also gave it up. Because he understood that knowing Jesus Christ was better than anything in this world. It was all refuse. It was all stuff that makes you gag compared to knowing Jesus. And so in verse 7 he says, but whatever gain I had, it was gain. It was gain. Understand there are things in this world that he gave up things in this world that God may ask you to give up that are good. And so he, it was hard for him to give that stuff up. Jesus said it this way in Luke chapter 16, verse 15. He said to all, you are those who justify yourselves before men. But God knows your hearts. And this is where I want you to zero in. For what is exalted among men, those things that are looked up to, those things that are valued, physical things, success, pride, position, all the things that are of value to people is an abomination in the sight of God. Those things that are of highest value are actually things that would make God vomit. That's what Jesus said. And Paul then comes along in Philippians 3, verse 7, whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as a loss. Why? Because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. Not because they're not of value, but because when you start doing the comparison, you recognize they're nothing. They're, they're less than nothing. So sometimes... Uh, it's, Going back to this young lady I married a long, long time ago in a land far away. <laughs> Sometimes um, she will come into the living room where I'm sitting and, and she'll say, do, do, I, do, I, do I still look good to you? And my response is, honey, there's nobody that looks as good as you. Now, what am I using? What was that? A strategy. Uh, yeah, it is. <laughs> See, after a while, you learn to be political. You learn to be, you know, yeah. Save your hide is what. <laughs> but it's true. Amen. Compared to all the other women in the whole world, to me, she's the most beautiful woman. Why? Because 
she's the one I've lived life with. She's the one that we've gone through ups and downs and ins and outs and all kinds of stuff through. We've lived, and so it's not, it's not that other, all the other women in the world are not beautiful or of value, but compared to my wife, they are not of worth to me. Does that make sense? Amen. And so that's what Paul is saying. It's not that these other things in life aren't pleasurable or aren't, don't make you feel good. It, it's just that compared to Jesus, they're nothing. And so he says, the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. So he says, for his sake I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ. The testimony. That's his testimony. Number two, then as a part of his testimony, he gives the benefits. The right side up, you know, this we've talked, those of you that are new around here, and I'll, by the way, if you're a first time guest, we're really glad that you're here. If, if you'll take time to fill out that blue card that's in the seat back pocket, um, we'll send you some additional information if you have prayer requests or anything. Um, just drop in the offering plate later. But around here, we, for the last few years, we've been talking about right side up versus upside down. This world's upside down uh, because of sin. But Jesus came to turn it right side up. The problem is he, turn, he forgives us, but it's a process of turning right side up as we were in the beginning. And so the benefits are these right side up, these heavenly kingdom, these unseen spiritual realm satisfaction that he provides. And we can only, I put a bullet point in there, we can only grasp that knowing Jesus is better as we obey, as we give ourselves to him. We can, we can only grasp that it is true by that experience. So a number of years ago, um, um, my, our kids had been married for quite a long time and, and they weren't giving us any grandkids. And, and I thought, man, I, I said to Sheila, I think we pushed that abstinence thing way too hard. Because <laughs> they, they keep telling me, it's okay now. Now that you're married, you're supposed to produce offspring. But they didn't do it for a while. And, and I would be around other people our age and and they're just getting flocks of these little grandkids. And they were crazy. Those people, those grandparents were nuts. They would come to me. You know, it used to be they would have wallets and, and the pictures would just flop out, you know, all the way. Now it's just pictures. Here, look at my grandkids. It's three years later, I'm scrolling through these, you know, all these pictures. And they're talking like they're... They hung the moon. I'm going, okay, I understand. Grand, you know, kids are nice, but really? That? Come on. And then I had one. Yeah. And I realized what they were talking about. Yeah. And I became one of those crazy grandparents. Mm -hmm. you know, it's just like, I wish I'd had grandkids before I had kids. <laughs> you know, they're a lot more fun. They're a lot more enjoyable. But until I, I, and I can't explain it. I cannot define it. I can try to tell you about it, but I can't explain. Mm -hmm. What, there's something supernatural about grandkids. And, I, and Paul and, and any other Christian can try to explain the depth of knowing Jesus intimately that is surpassing that is a surpassing greatness of anything else that you can possibly experience. But until you experience it, you can't really get it. And I think that's, that's what's so hard in this world is there are people chasing after things that will make them happy and you try to tell them it's Jesus and, and they can't get it because they haven't tasted it yet. But that's what Paul says. He says, it is beyond comparison. We looked at this scripture, I think, a couple of weeks ago. In uh, John chapter 8, 31 and 32, Jesus said to the Jews who had believed in him, if you abide in my word, you are truly my disciples. If you do what I tell you to do, if you experience following me, he says, then you will know the truth. Then you will understand it, you will grasp it, and the truth will set you free. He says the only way to really experience the satisfaction, the joy, the fulfillment that Jesus says he offers is to follow him, is to do it, is to begin to participate in this life with him. And when you do, you begin to find that satisfaction. 
The benefits, the next bullet point is the benefits of knowing Christ only make sense right side up. Only makes sense in, in, as you're looking through spiritual eyes in the, the unseen realm. They only make sense. Because as we look at them, you're going, that doesn't sound like good news. But it is. The description uh, begins in um, Philippians chapter 3, verse 8. Um, and C.S. Lewis captures it well in one of my favorite quotes um, from the book called The Weight of Glory, which I highly recommend. C.S. Lewis in The Weight of Glory says, It would seem that our Lord finds our desires not too strong, but too weak. We are half-hearted creatures fooling around with drink and sex and ambition, seeking fulfillment and satisfaction when infinite joy is offered to us. Like an ignorant child, and I think that's the key, an ignorant child, if you haven't experienced it, you can hear somebody talk about it and it doesn't make sense. Like an ignorant child who wants to go on making mud pies in a slum because he cannot imagine what it means by the offer of a holiday or a vacation at the sea. We are far too easily pleased. It's not that we shouldn't desire that which brings us pleasure and fulfillment and satisfaction. It's that our desires are chasing after mud pies instead of the presence of God that he wants to do in our lives. Amen. So here we see in Philippians chapter 3, beginning with the second part of verse 8, what Paul says are the benefits. He says, first of all, salvation which is forgiveness. Our sins are forgiven. We're reconciled in relationship with God through Jesus' death. And the eternal life that begins now, the eternal life that begins here and then we'll go into um, an, another life after we die that is beyond comprehension as we trust Him. The second part of verse 8 says, in order that I may gain Christ and be found in Him. Not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith. In order that I may gain Christ and be found in Him, that I, that I have my sins forgiven, that I'm reconciled into relationship that was lost back in Eden, be found in Him, be found in this relationship with Him, so that now instead of being at, at, at odds, an enemy of the God of the universe, now I'm his child. But then he goes on, it's, it, but it's not by righteousness of my own. It's not by trying harder, not by following the rules, which is what he talked about earlier in Philippians. It's not that. It's by trust. It's just simply trusting him. It's just simply coming to him and saying, okay, I choose to follow you instead of anything else. I choose you over everything else in the world. I will trust you. From this point on. And then he goes on in verse 10. He says, and that I may know him. And so the second benefit that he talks about is knowing Christ in an intimate, personal, satisfying relationship. An intimate, personal, satisfying relationship. I think... A lot of people who have, who have grown up in cultures that are familiar with Christianity at some level understand it to be religion rather than intimate relationship. Yeah. And it doesn't matter whether you grew up Catholic or Protestant or nothing. Our perception is that there are rules that you need to follow in order for God not to get you. In order for God not to, to you know, we just need to earn enough for God to be happy with us. And then, then, I, then he won't hit me all the time. He won't take me to the woodshed. And, and, and someday I'll be able to go to heaven and, and I'll be sitting on a cloud in a robe playing a harp, music that I don't even like. And is it any wonder people aren't, uh, that's not appealing? I don't want to go play a harp. I don't like harp music. I'm sorry. If you like harp music, that's fine. More power to you. Give me an electric guitar. 
none of that's true. It's all fabrication. I don't even know where it came from. And so we understand it as religion, as trying to, to earn something with God, rather than the intimacy of a loving father with a little child. One of the best pictures of a, a relationship with Jesus is when he's teaching. Parents are bringing, trying to get their little children to Jesus so that he can put his hand on them and bless them. And the disciples are telling those parents to go away. The master's too busy. And Jesus, the Bible tells us, got mad, indignant at his disciples for keeping those children away. And he says, let the little children come to me, for such is the kingdom of God. He says, that's the picture. The picture is of an intimacy, a love relationship between a, a, a father who, would, who sacrificed his son so that we could have intimate relationship with him. Now, if, if all we understand, the only point of reference is religion, following the rules, then we don't get this intimate relationship. And if all we understand is that it's about praying a magic prayer, the sinner's prayer, where, you know, and accepting him, and that's it, then we don't get this intimate relationship with him. Because the sinner's prayer, if, if that's the way you come to Christ, if that's the way you turn it, that's the beginning. That's the saying, yes. And now the rest of life is this intimate relationship of growing deeper and deeper and deeper and deeper and deeper and deeper, deeper with him. And Paul says, that relationship, compared to everything that, uh, that I could ever experience in this life, that relationship makes everything else like the stinking, gagging stuff in the bottom of a trash can. Mm -hmm. But if you don't have a point of reference for that, it's pretty hard to grasp it. Mm -hmm. But that's what it is. Knowing Christ in intimacy A while back, um, I was spending some time with God, and I don't, I, I don't even remember how it started, but I think I was kind of whining at him. You ever do that? <laughs> I'm going, God, why? You know, as I look back on my life, there's some really hard things. Some of you know the story of my dad and some other stuff in my life. And I, I'm going, God, why in the what? It, what? And he, and in that moment, I'm, I'm, I'm on my knees before him. And in that moment, he started bringing pictures to my mind of my life. And when I was a little kid, my dad was emotionally and, and verbally abusive and harsh. And um, I just felt beat up all the time. And he took me to some moments when I was a kid and, and that was going on. And and my feeling was, I, why wasn't God doing anything? Why wasn't God helping me? Why was God? And he, and he brought that picture to my mind. And then here's what I heard from the Holy Spirit. I was there. I was there. I was protecting you. Mm -hmm. And then he brought another scene from my childhood. And he said, I was there. And another time when I thought nobody cared about me, I was there. And he took me picture after picture through my life saying, I was there. I was there. I was there. There's never been a time, no matter how painful it was or hard it was, that I wasn't there. And I protected you from situations that could have been worse. And I was allowing some of those situations so that you would be molded into the man you are today. And so that you would have the desire for me that you have today. And I just wept. That's the intimacy. It's not that he's not there. It's that he's there and we have to trust him as a loving Heavenly Father, knowing that he's doing what's best. And even when we do stupid things, even when we make mistakes, even when we turn away, he's there. And he's saying, just come back. Just come back. Because he loves us beyond comprehension. Knowing Christ. And that's what Paul is talking about. Knowing Christ in intimate relationship. And then he goes on. He says, the power of his resurrection. The Holy Spirit in us has 
the same power that brought Jesus back from the dead. The power of his resurrection. So that there is nothing that we will ever face that is too big. Why? Because the power of the Holy Spirit is within you. And God is bigger. So no situation you ever face, no difficulty, no struggle, no sickness, no, no decision you have to make is ever bigger than Him. Amen. And He's within if you are following Him, if you're in step with Him. But it requires that we be in alignment with Him. His resurrection power doesn't exhibit itself um, unless we allow Him. He's not going to override our will. So Romans chapter 12, I put, did I put it in your outline? Yeah. Romans chapter 12, I appeal to you therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as living sacrifices. As a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Give yourself completely to Him. Turning away from all else and making Him exclusive. And then, as you go through life, do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind. That's this continuous action every day. Don't be conformed, but be transformed. That by testing, you may discern what God's will is. You'll, you'll know what he wants you to do, and you'll have the power to do it. His good and acceptable and perfect will. And that's a lot what the shape training is all about. Not, so we're, we're discovering how God has created us, what spiritual gifts he's given us, what heart, passion that we, that we have, the abilities that he's given us, the personality that he's given us, the experiences that he's brought us through. So we're discovering how he has made us, each one of us and all of us together, so that we can know what his will is to accomplish his purposes. And so this is where it takes work. So... <laughs> If I had gone down on my knee and said, Sheila, would you marry me? And she said yes. And then we went to Toledo, Ohio, and a long time ago in a land far away. And we said, I do to each other. And then we went home, and then I went back to my dorm room, and she went back to her dorm What in the world would happen? Nothing. Nothing. Right? We wouldn't get to know each other. We wouldn't, we wouldn't be in sync with each other. Why? Because we're not together. But instead... We got this little garage apartment that was the size of a two-car garage, which I know was the size of a two-car garage because it was a two-car garage right below us. <laughs> and, and from there on, it was time, experiences, arguments, making up, achieving things, going through hard things, going through good things, as we got to know each other. So if that's true for us as human beings, why don't we think it would be true for us with God? If you don't spend any time with Him, you're not going to get to know Him. Amen. And you're not going to experience His power. To share in His sufferings is the next one. You don't understand this. You can't grasp this unless you're looking at it right side up because that does not sound like good news. Paul says, I want to, that I may share in His sufferings in verse 10. And it's not the first time that he mentions that. In, earlier in Philippians chapter 1, um, I don't think I put it in your outline. Uh, Philippians 1, 29 and 30 says, For it has been granted to you that for the sake of Christ you should not only believe in him, but also suffer for his sake. It granted to you as a gift that you should suffer for Christ. That doesn't sound like good news. Upside down. But right side up, we understand in verse 30, he says, engaged in the same conflict that you saw I had and now hear that I still have. It's in the context of spiritual warfare. Suffering as we fight on the side of Christ. Struggling, suffering, enduring difficulties, having struggles as we are walking in step with him, right side up. And in doing that, we get to know him better. And in doing that, we get to walk in intimacy. You know the things that have um, helped Sheila and I discover more and more about each other? Most are not the good times, but the struggles. Especially when you get into an argument and you start saying things that you, that you shouldn't say. Suddenly, you, re suddenly the, you reveal things about yourself that you've hidden because you wanted to look good. 
And I go, oh, you really think that? Yeah, and you ought to know it, right? <laughs> That's what you usually get. And then you talk it through and you realize, oh, now I discover. Well, it's the same thing with God. You go through the difficult times and you, and you go, God, where are you? And you discover him showing you stuff that you never thought you'd see before. The struggles, the suffering leads to accomplishing things for him because it's in the context of spiritual warfare. John 16, 33, we read this earlier. I have said these things to you that in me you may have peace. In the world you will have tribulation, but take heart, I have overcome the world. Number five, becoming like him in his death. Becoming like him in his death. The literal translation is to be being conformed into him like him in his death. It's not, um, it doesn't mean that we um, we die in order to earn our salvation, whether literally or figuratively. What it means is his attitude in his death, remember in the garden? Lord, take this cup from me, but not my will, but your will be done. And then he went to his death. He says, that's what he's talking about. I want to be conformed to his death, his attitude and his death, so that it's, I'm, I'm, I don't want to suffer, but I want his will more. I want him to accomplish what he wants to accomplish more. Becoming like him in his death. Hebrews 5.8 tells us that although Jesus was a son, he learned obedience through what he suffered. The difficulties. He learned, if Jesus learned obedience by what he suffered, what do you think the odds are that we can learn it without suffering? Without becoming like him in his death? Zero. And then six, to attain the resurrection of the dead. By all means possible, verse 11, by all means possible I may attain the resurrection of the dead. Here, again, it's not talking about earning resurrection. He's ta- it's more of this attitude of whatever it takes God do so that I am faithful all the way to the end. I want to be faithful all the way to the end. I want to know you more. I want to become more and more like you because my purpose, my focus is on the next life, not this life. And that's where we're going to be headed next week as we continue in the chapter. It means to arrive at the end of the journey. By any means possible, I want to arrive at the end of the journey having the resurrection of the dead, having a body like Jesus' body. And the older I get, the more appealing that resurrected body is. Amen? Amen. I mean, gee whiz, some days. And so, here's the contrast. I think, do you have the chart up here? So here's the contrast. Just go ahead and put them all up. He was... All this stuff on the left side, he says, is like stuff that makes you gag, no matter how good it was. I was religious. I was circumcised on the eighth day. Israelite, Benjamite, son of Hebrew parents. I was a Pharisee, a zealous persecutor of the church. I was blameless. I was all of these things. That's human achievement. That's all the stuff that I said. I, this, is, this is like the bottom of a trash can compared to what I received through Christ. Reconciliation. Knowing Christ in an intimacy that brings satisfaction beyond comprehension. Living with a resurrection power so that nothing you ever face will ever be bigger than the Christ that is within you. Sharing in his sufferings, dying to the world, and living, having a resurrected body in the future. This past week on Tuesday was a um, minister's gathering um, for the Church of God in Western Pennsylvania. And the speaker was a guy I went to college with, several years older than me. Um, and I didn't really think much of him when we were in college, <laughs> quite frankly. He was a brother of one of my roommates, and, and he just was a, like an odd sort of person. He graduated, pastor for a while, and then went back to our alma mater and became um, he got a doctorate in uh, biblical studies, became the head of the Bible and pastoral department at our alma mater, and um, then I came to Pennsylvania. We, we, we really haven't had much interaction since. But as I sat there listening to him speak, I went, something's happened 
in this man's life. This is not the Cliff Sanders I knew when I was in college. And then in one of the sessions, the second or third session, he began to share about his struggle to believe that God really loved him, even as he was in ministry. And he said he was 49 years old, sitting on a plane, and he said, God, is, will I ever come to really believe that you love me? You see, he had religion, and he had some relationship, but he didn't have intimacy. And then he said he was flying to a conference where another one of our classmates was, was in charge. And uh, towards the end of it, um, Gary, our other classmate, um, came over to him and, and said in the midst of all of these leaders he was working with, I just feel led to pray for Cliff. And he began to pray for him. And I think it was Isaiah 53. He just began to pray. And suddenly, something happened in him, and he experienced the love of God. And he was transformed. Well, I had made arrangements to, to take him back to the airport so we could have some time together. And I said, man, you are not the same person. I said, well, let me tell you about my experience. And I told him about how having this picture and God inviting me to sit up on his lap and something changed. You see, that's what God wants for us, is that transformation of believing that God really, truly loves us. And then he asked me this question, why do you think it is that so many pastors never experience this? Because they don't. My working with pastors is most pastors never get there. And as we began to talk, I, I began to... Um, make some observation. My observations was that it's because um, it's a process and most people think of a moment in time. It's a lifetime of surrender. You see, even though Cliff was 49 years old, when that happened, God had been working on that for decades. And it just had to, stuff had to come together in order for him to experience it. Another reason is because it requires pain. It requires enough pain to say, God, do whatever it takes. I'm willing to surrender whatever. I'm, it take, requires pain, and most people won't pay that price. Most pastors. It requires saying yes no matter what comes. You see, it's an increasing yes. In the early days, it's kind of little stuff. As, as it goes on, it's bigger and bigger and bigger and bigger and bigger and bigger until God gets us to the place where we're, we're able to trust. It requires trust that's deeper than surrender putting our full weight on him. It requires refusing to give up. And that's my answer. A lot of times people, it, it, another layer of trust that God requires. Here's another situation I want you to trust me with. And for most people, they get to some level where God asks them to trust them with something and they say, no, that's too much. And they turn away. So they never experience the intimacy that God offers to them. It, respire, it requires a desperation. But our, our culture of affluence allows us to medicate our desperation so that we don't have to feel it. So those, those are some of the observations that we had. We had an incredible, wonderful time of reconnecting with a man that I didn't know. I knew him in college. But the intimacy changes everything. So that brings us to number three, the choice. And that is to count all as loss in order to receive Christ. Past, it requires that choice in the past, present, and future. So very quickly, it requires that choice to count all as loss in a moment in time. That's the past. There's a moment in time where it begins. And so if we go back to Philippians chapter 3, verse 7, whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. That's a moment in time. And that is what's required of each one of us. There's a moment in time when we have to say, I want Jesus more than all else. It's a moment in time when I had to bow before, put on my knee before Sheila, saying, I want you more than any other woman in the whole world. There's a moment in time. That's past tense. I counted all as loss. 
That was, and it, and it happened, Paul had been wrestling with it for years. He was Saul in, in, the, uh, in the book of Acts. And we get to chapter 9, he'd been wrestling with it. He was there when Stephen was stoned. And then he's on his way from Jerusalem to Damascus and Jesus meets him and puts him on his face in the dirt, blinds him. And says, okay, Paul, what are you going to do? And he had to make a choice. Am I going to be stupid and stay blind? Or am I going to really believe that Jesus is the Christ? That's a moment in time when we have to decide. And that's usually what most evangelical Christians believe. Billy Graham stands up, come to the altar, pray this magic prayer, and, and you're a Christian. That's what most people think Christianity is, but that's the beginning. He says, I counted it all as lost, past tense. And then he says, but it's a continuing ongoing choice where we so settle this issue. Is Jesus truly better than anything else? And I'm going to turn my back on that to turn to him. Continuing ongoing choice, verse 8. Indeed, I count everything. I have counted, should be translated, I have counted and continue to count everything as lost. Every single day, every day that I get up, I continue to count everything as lost. Every day when I get up, am I going to, the, the question has been settled. Every day when I get up and I say, Sheila, see Sheila across the, the breakfast table, I, I don't have to decide, okay, am I going to hang with this today? <laughs> I mean, if you do your hair a little bit nicer in the morning before you come to breakfast or, you know, make my coffee a little bit better, maybe, you know. No, it's a settled, it's a done deal, right? Every day, it's a done deal. I, the choice has been made. It's exclusive. I count everything as a loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. For his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish. A point in time, and then every day, ongoing, I continue to count them as rubbish. Continue to count them as rubbish. Continue to count them as rubbish. And this is important because there will come moments in your life when you wonder, is Jesus worth it? Yeah. I can promise you. And it never stops. There will still come moments in my life when the, quest, the, the devil will put the question, is Jesus really worth this? Does he really love you? When you're going through all of this stuff, when, when this life is not turning out the way that you thought it would be, when people are rejecting you, and, and when your body starts to break down, is Jesus really worth it? This has to be an issue that we settle in a point of time, but then we settle as we go forward because it will be a challenge. Jesus had to know this because there was a moment when his brothers and his mother came to him and thought he was crazy. And they came to take him away. And he had to say, even if I lose my mother and my brothers, what I do for my father is most important. That choice will come to you for the rest of your life. It will continue to come to you. You have to settle it. And then finally, it's a future-focused choice. He, his spiritual condition is one, not of perfection, but of continuing progress. Look at Philippians chapter 3. Last part of verse 8 says, In order that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ. The righteousness of God that depends on faith. That I may know him, the power of his resurrection, may share in his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, that by any means possible I may attain the resurrection of the dead. I'm looking to the future. I'm not looking here. I'm looking to the future. It's a future-focused choice. Not that I've already obtained this, or am already perfect, verse 12, but I press on. I press on. I press on to make it my own, because Christ Jesus has made me his own. I press on. Some of you have been Christians a long time. Why participate in the shape training? Because we press on. Because we keep growing. We never stop growing. We, never, we give our very best effort for the rest of our lives. We never arrive. We just keep going. We just keep going. We just keep going. You know, it's, it's, to me, it's hilarious and sad both at the same time. I'm already past time, so it doesn't matter. I, this is just so. This is just so core Amen. Yeah. Amen. that I don't want to short, 
what is that, short shrifted. So it's, it's funny and sad to me because, so on Tuesday I told you I went to that pastor gathering. Every time I go to a pastor gathering these days, um, I have friends who, I've been in ministry for a long time and they're a few years older than me, so they know I, what my age is. They know I'm past 65. And without fail, they, they ask me, well, are you going to retire yet? You're going to retire? You don't, want to re- you don't want to wait till your body's all breaking down and then retire. You know, you want to be able to retire and enjoy it. And you want to, I, I don't miss pastoring at all. You know, I'm going, yeah, exactly. <laughs> and, I, and, I, and I can't help but kind of giggle and laugh. I'm going, it, I, I won't criticize them. But I, I just feel sad for them. And I, I say to them, I couple things. First of all, I believe I'm hitting my stride. <laughs> Took me a long time to get here, but I feel like it's better the last few years in spite of the pandemic than it's ever been to be a pastor in this congregation looking to the future and what God has in mind. Amen. Why in the world would you sit around playing video games and watching YouTube and playing golf when you can be making a difference in people's lives? I don't get it. Now, someday I'm going to be old and who knows what's going to happen. You know, I I won't live forever. But that was the Apostle Paul all the way to the end. So he gets to the end of his life, you know, we think, when he gets to Rome, waiting to be beheaded. And he's evangelizing all of the soldiers and all of the guards. And he's gathering people. Why? Because Jesus is worth it. And that's where the pleasure comes in. That's, that's, where the, you know, that's where the joy is. That's where the satisfaction, that's where the fulfillment is. So if, you, if you're hesitating about this whole shape training, thinking, oh, you know, I'm, I don't know if I can do anything. No. If you're breathing, God has a purpose for you. Amen. right? And the satisfaction that you find will be because you're in alignment with Him and, and you're in intimacy with Him and He uses you in other people's lives. So I want to grab my pastor friends that have retired by the throat. <laughs> finally. Finally. But, and just by the way, it, that's a result of what has happened in the decades of their lives. Mm-hmm. Right? Mm-hmm. Finally, every choice um, is a response of love to God for his love. Mm-hmm. And Cliff talked about this on Tuesday. And it really got me thinking of how, how much, how important this is. Mm-hmm. That our capacity to love God and to love other people is in direct correlation with how much we receive his love. Mm-hmm. Because we don't love with our love. We love with his love in us. Mm-hmm. We serve with his power and his love in us. Look at what the scripture says in 1 John chapter 4, 16-19. So we have come to know and to believe the love that God has for us. We have come to know and believe the love that God has for us. Because here he's talking, here's, this is the apostle John. Holy Spirit talking through him. He says, because there was a point in time when I settled the issue. And for the rest of my life, every single day, I'm settling the issue, focused on the future. God is love. And whoever abides in love abides in God and God abides in him. By this is love perfected in us, so that we have confidence for the day of judgment. Because as he is also are we in this world. There is no fear in love. He's referring to intimacy. There's no fear in, in when we begin to really experience that intimacy and love with God. There's no fear in that, but because perfect love casts out fear. When you're experiencing his love, no longer are you feeling shame. No longer are you feeling criticized by God. You're feeling his love. And when you are experiencing that, you have a desire to be with him and become like him. 
He says, for fear has to do with punishment. Whoever fears has not been perfected in love. When here's, here is what caught me as Cliff was talking. We love because he first loved us. Everything we do is in response to him. And so we have to get in alignment with him. We have to get in this intimate relationship with him. We have to surrender ourselves to him so that we can experience all that love that he has for us. And it goes deeper and deeper and deeper. And it's an exhaustive love. You will never get to the end of it. The longer you, you know, I, I get teared up about scriptures and what God is doing and the songs that we sing more now than ever. Man, another 10 years, I'm just going to be a blubbering mess up here. <laughs> Because it gets that profound and it gets that precious. So it's impossible to describe the pleasure that comes with this intimacy and alignment with God. If you have not experienced it, I beg of you to trust me, trust the Apostle Paul, trust other people in your life, that it's worth it. Whatever God is asking you to do, however he's asking you to surrender, it's worth it. There's nothing compared. There's nothing worth sacrificing your relationship with God in order to have that, whatever that is. So would you bow your heads? Oh, Father, would you pour out your love on these people in a fresh way? Whatever that means, whatever that looks like, however you want to do it, God, I pray that you would pour out your love. And not just on us that are here today, but more and more people just in ever-expanding ripples. Would you pour out your love that as you draw people to yourself, I pray that you would give us that, that laser-like focus on you to walk in step with you. Lord, I pray that you would do whatever it takes to help us understand and and really believe and live that everything is refuse compared to the surpassing greatness of knowing you. Lord, I pray for each person that, that you would help us to make that choice. And if you're here today and you haven't It's really simple. Just say, Lord, I surrender myself to you. Lord, I give myself to you. And then start following. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen.